What's really incredible, I think, when we think about the success and the possibilities we see ahead is just we have the data and the tools and the technology to really do all of these things within our reach in cancer across all of healthcare. Welcome to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. I'm Maria Whitman, and this episode is part of our series on the future of healthcare. Today, I'm talking with Carolyn Starrett, CEO of Flatiron Health. It was founded in 2012, and Flatiron has built the leading U.S. oncology real-world data source. Before Carolyn became CEO in 2021, she led the company's community oncology business. Welcome, Carolyn. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And happy 10-year anniversary to Flatiron. Thank you. 10 years, Carolyn. Um, for our listeners, can you talk a little bit about the mission of Flatiron, how the company evolved? I especially think about it since the barriers you must have faced with a fragmented health system in trying to get this data together. Yeah. So, so our mission has always been and, and hasn't changed. Our mission is to improve and extend lives by learning from the experience of every person with cancer. And that's really kind of the mission that drove us as we were founded, and it's continued to be true today. What's been interesting to observe uh, over the last well, six and a half years since I've been a part of Flatiron is just how much opportunity remains to really reimagine the infrastructure that supports cancer care and research around the world and, and think about how do we tackle that mission in um, in new ways and what new possibilities have, have come to bear. So you know, we started with a real focus on software and technology for community cancer centers in the United States, and then in building the identified aggregated data sets for research to accelerate and advance new therapies and, and to understand how those therapies work in the real world for real world patient populations. Um, over the last few years, I think we've we've really started to broaden our ambitions. And, and so we're thinking about how can we you know, blend integrated real-world evidence with prospective evidence generation, making clinical trials much more efficient and representative. And then how can we think about really carrying through this mission to the point of care and, and helping to support improvement in patient outcomes, um, driving you know, better clinical treatment decisions and, and clinical decision support. I think you asked about kind of the barriers we see. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the the first one and the, and the one that really, you know, was foundational in, in creating the company was just that the access to the necessary longitudinal data and outcomes was was not there. I think we've made a lot of a progress there. Um, the two that I think about a lot now are just how do we get to a better place with greater alignment of the incentives, whether it be around what we pay for and how kind of payment models work and, and the really important evolution towards value-based care that, that I think is incre incredibly important, um, but also just how do we give patients the kind of role that they need to play in the center of their care and of their health and, and you know, longer term a lot of the opportunity, the potential will rely on doing things that we're used to doing in one way, using different tools and different methods and different approaches. And so, you know, the biggest barrier, honestly, is, is just that natural change aversion that I think we all have to, you know, coming, you know, getting up in the morning and changing our routine and, you know, looking at a new project and thinking about what is, what are the potential ways that I could do this differently and better. I, I love that point. I think the change aversion in health is pretty high. And even when we try to change, we end up fragmenting further. But there's also this reality that we've built 
processes around what we believe is the best, the best for the protocol and the trial, the best for the patient care that any one institution is going to give. And one of the things I really love about where you've prioritized as a company is closing the gap between research and care. I mean, patients are patients through the whole, we are people, we become patients, we're patients through the whole spectrum. And yet there is a very sharp drop-off, I guess, and the real world data and evidence can really support that transition in some ways. So mm. what, what would success look like in closing that gap between research and care? And where are we in that journey? I honestly think we're still in the very early days. Yeah, how, how, what what would success look like? Starting from just like unpacking that that the set of words that you described, closing the gap between research and care. Well, let's define research as all of the the learning and the innovation that goes into determining into you know thinking about what new options should exist and how do we learn which patients should get which therapies and you know what what types of treatment and of uh, the clinical trials that tell us what are the new alternatives that we want to bring into the market there's all of that learning and innovation happening on an ongoing basis but right now it's you know takes far too long to figure out how we translate that that learning back to patients who are treated any given day whether it be you know understanding the right therapy whether it be participating in a trial uh, whether it be integrating kind of new standard of care and new guidance that comes out of all of the trials that are that are running around the world so you know what what we really think is is that there is a possibility to dramatically tighten that gap and you know what, what would success look like um, it would be an ongoing kind of learning system that helps us continuously reduce the time it takes to bring new therapies to market and and to understand who can benefit most from them and and then to make them available to the patients that need them and success would be, integrating clinical research and trials into the everyday care experience. Today, they, you know, whether you are kind of being treated in, in clinical standard of care or participating in a clinical trial means that you're kind of going through two def different, totally siloed systems of care. And, and it shouldn't have to be that way. We should be able to kind of integrate research and learning into the care that all patients receive. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it means ensuring that every person with cancer receives the best possible care no matter where they're treated and, you know, whom their doctors are. And what's really incredible, I think, when we think about the success and the possibilities we see ahead is just we have the data and the tools and the technology to really do all of these things within our reach in cancer across all of healthcare. You know, coming back to kind of where we started the conversation, I think the real opportunity is overcoming those historical barriers to progress and and you know, shifting our mindset, really embracing the power of, of the new approaches that are available now to us. I, I agree that real world evidence is not, we've not even scratched the surface on what's possible to do to change patient care, um, to change an individual's experience and mm -hmm. care throughout their journey, whether it's cancer or other chronic illnesses in the system. You've done a lot um, at Flatiron to work towards improvement of clinical trials. You know, what, what, what is the big next opportunity? If we have to pick one, you know, to get past these barriers, is there another one or two places where you think we should be much further ahead using real world evidence than we are right now? I think in, in some ways, or if you kind of um, unpack that, that question, 
historically with clinical trials, we've been able to use real world data to figure out how to design better trials and figure out where to open trials and, and figure out how to screen patients and help enroll them. The real opportunity over time, though, is I think getting smarter about how we use real world data to understand treatment patterns and outcomes after drugs are approved. We've all kind of seen the trend towards more and more drugs getting approved on smaller and smaller data sets. And what that means is the results of the, the trials, like, you know, certainly un, we can understand a baseline set of safety and efficacy, but a lot of the learning needs to happen after the trial is done. A lot of the learning needs to happen when we bring those therapies into the real world and we can understand populations that, you know, we're not able to, to study in a, in a clinical trial setting where we can understand how to kind of optimize for different dynamics where, you know, we can follow patients actually using the real world data in clinical care after the trial is done and start to, to understand how to optimize treatment much faster and much more rapidly. We're seeing a world in which there are a growing number of, of post-marketing commitments and research questions that we really want the opportunity to study. And right now, you know, running a, a phase three, phase four clinical trial is, is a really important tool that we can use. But it's slow and it's expensive and and often it's still not representative. And so I think we have a real opportunity to use integrated evidence to learn much more quickly about kind of real world outcomes and, and real world opportunities. And that's really what people want. You know, in our survey, just about 50%, just under 50% of people don't believe the health system cares about people like them. And when you go globally, it's almost the same percentage in most countries we studied. And it says that when you dig in further, you know, I'm not getting treatment that's specific and personal to me. I'm not, you know, we're not, we're not taking the best of what we know and applying it to my health in person. And that breeds into a lot of questions around, do I trust individuals in the system with my data? And what, what's interesting is some of the population says, I'll trust you if I know it's going to improve my care. Others say, I'll trust you if I know it's going to improve population care. But trust has been a big issue out there in terms of health and health data. So how has Flatiron navigated that particular challenge? Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I think it's trust, security, protection of patient data and patient privacy has to be at the core of everything we do. All of, all of this opportunity is reliant on our ability to kind of build and build, build the trust and stay accountable to patients for how we use their data and, and, and um, how, how we use it for good, what the, what the benefit of the work that they are doing uh, and, and, this, and the learning system that they are contributing to is. So Flatiron, you know, we, first and foremost, I mean, we, we adopt the strictest security standards to ensure that patient data is protected. We've got robust processes to anonymize and de-identify all the data we learn from. We do expert determinations to ensure that every data set we share externally to Flatiron is individually certified as de-identified and and we prohibit linking and pooling of data sets without kind of further certifications of that data. That's just kind of the foundation. I think as an industry, we need to get much smarter about how we, we talk about and build transparency with what data are being collected, how we plan to use that data. Um, 
So some of the things you know we've been we've been doing over the last few years at Flatiron is is really spending time learning from patients about what they care about. So we have a, a patient advisory board here in the U.S., a, a patient voices panel in the U.K., where we spend time regularly talking to patients to understand you know what they value, what their concerns are, how we can how we can work together to um, tackle those those topics. Uh, and you know, we also one of the one of my favorite parts of the work we do at Flatiron is the time we get to spend with patients. We do a patient panel uh, at least twice a year at our everyone team meetings at our all hands meetings, and you know, a, a biased sample of course. But what we find is that once patients understand how their their data are being used and the power of the research and the questions that can come from that. They are incredibly supportive. Um, we always ask the question about how they feel about sharing their data. And, and uh, I have yet to talk to a patient who isn't passionate about helping others to learn from their experience. So, you know, I think it really comes back to that point of building trust through education, transparency, awareness, and then just continuing to be really careful stewards of the data and how it's uh, and ensuring that we, we adhere to the highest possible standards there. That's great. And I, I agree with you. Patients, many of them are very eager to help the next patient as well, mm -hmm. not go through everything that they had to go through. And I'm, I'm really curious in all these patient panels, has there been some insight that that struck you in particular about what patients saw as possibilities in the data or how they saw the opportunity in front of us to, to change care? I think it's exactly what you said. It's that we can use this data for good. I've had melanoma twice, I think they haven't gone through a really, you know, the intense struggle that that so many people with cancer go through. But I think we all have um, a desire to to want to give back, to, to make sure our stories count, to make sure that, as you said, you know, that someone else uh, can can use uh, the experiences that we each have and hopefully help support a better, you know, make that better. And and so I think you know, there's there's an inherent desire in all of us to want to do good. The real opportunity and challenge is to make sure that we um, stay accountable to to um, the the very appropriately high expectations that uh, patients in the system overall have to make sure that we continue to, um, to 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 have the right protections in place and help uh, be as transparent as possible. You know, Carolyn, in the few times I've met you, you've shown to be one of the most passionate uh, people I know about this. And I, I didn't even know about your cancer. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, I, I think one of the the biggest opportunities we have uh, and, you know, COVID definitely shown a, um, shown a light on health inequity. And you think about the disparities, particularly in cancer care can be very stark. I mean, just the difference in women succeeding in therapy, black women versus white women in breast cancer, for example. I mean, very, very stark discrepancies. And I'm curious what you think are the most important steps that life sciences can take and help with data like what you have at Flatiron and the solutions you have to, to really try to boost health equity to change what we're seeing in cancer care. Yeah. I, so we've had a, a long-term commitment to health equity at Flatiron. And, and when we talk about you know, data for good, right, I think that is one of the core and, and important obligations that we have if we want to be good stewards of the data that we are so privileged to get to learn from. Um, so if you think 
one of the moments we're, we're most proud of at Flatiron, one of the publications we, we did was selected at the to be presented at ASCO's plenary session mm. a few years ago. It was right after the ACA in the U.S. helped drive uh, expansion of Medicaid in many states. And we were able to look at what is the impact of the extension of Medicaid on time to treatment for cancer and show that it had a demonstrable benefit in terms of how quickly patients um, were, were going from diagnosis to treatment. That was that was measurable and meaningful, and that's the kind of thing that is really hard to learn without you looking at real world outcomes and without data sources like the the ones that we've cultivated. Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. So, uh, so a slightly more challenging dynamic, however, is like we got to continue to systemically monitor those real world outcomes so that we can figure out what those levers are. So, you know, we also published recently, we looked at all the data through COVID of, of what happened. And one of the really positive and exciting things is we all saw this tremendous uh, increase in the utilization of telehealth solutions, right? Everyone kind of came together and rallied and figured out how do I, how do I do as much care in virtual settings as possible? All great. Well, like many things in healthcare, when you step back, we looked at the data and the reality is that access to health, to telehealth isn't evenly distributed. And so we, you know, we find that patients who are in lower income uh, or kind of have less access to resources actually have a harder time accessing telehealth care. And so as a result, you know, that impacts the quality of the experience they're going to have. And so, you know, we have an improvement in one area, which leads to setbacks in others. And I think the opportunity is to continue asking those questions and, and, looking at, at where and how we can we can address those those challenges. In terms of what life sciences can do, I, I think you asked about that. The one that I'm most passionate about right now, and we see this, uh, there, this has been, I think, a, a growing stream of conversation uh, across the industry is just that our trials are not nearly representative enough of the patients who ultimately are going to use those treatments. And we really need to make an ongoing commitment to diversity in trials. We're seeing kind of guidance and, and regulations, which which similarly support this here in the U.S. Um, it's a really hard thing. It is. It's. Uh, it's. There. There are not kind of easy solutions here. I already talked about it. Trials are too slow and too expensive, and it's it's uh, incredible. They're incredibly burdensome to all involved. So yes, we can make them more efficient and um, and you know more friendly to investigators and clinicians and patients and sponsors, but. We kind of we have to do that so that we can then at the same time also improve the representative of the peop, uh, representativeness of the patients who are actually enrolling in them and make them more accessible to those patients. And I think that's kind of, you know, one of those things where, where we all have to come together and wake up and say, we're going to do this differently. We're going to prioritize differently if we want to see it really change. You probably saw a lot of the access issue in your role with the community oncology setting too. You know, one of the things I think about is there's the access, there's also this um, amazing fragmentation that's happening of the care journey now because we've disaggregated the where of care, right? We, we've got, you know, more alternative sites of care. We have 29% of the population not having a primary care physician. We have many, many more people going to the pharmacist as a first port of call, you know, really trying to navigate care in the way they need to, or, you know, or when they need to, unfortunately, most not until they're sick. So, so I'm thinking about this and like, okay, there's the people who don't have access. Then there's this kind of heterogeneity of how do we even find people and bring them in at the right time to the system. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that as we, as we try to recruit the right people to the trials that we need. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
you know, I started talking about this earlier. I think some of it has to start from reorienting towards, you know, designing trials that are aligned towards the sponsors and the sponsors needs. And and that makes sense. Historically, they were the ones paying for it. They're the ones, you know, kind of who are going to stand to benefit if if the trial is successful outside of, of the patients who will benefit from those therapies. But actually, like, do we need to turn that on its head and think more about how do we make it so much simpler and less burdensome for the sites that are going to need to find those patients and enroll them in the patients that need to kind of give up some of their lives to participate in that learning. And, you know, I think, as you mentioned, uh, we do really close work with almost half of the community and independent cancer clinics in the U.S., and they don't have the resources to kind of open the types of trials that they would want to open because it's so burdensome. We still see that like 20% of the sites that open a trial never enroll a single patient. Right. which is just mind boggling when you think about that. So I think, um, you know, the thing, the things that we can, we can do are a couple fold one, like build better technology to take the manual, take the, just the, the terribly inefficient manual duplicative effort out of this process. Right. So, you know, rather than manually screening patients for all the different inclusion exclusion criteria, how do we use AI and technology to automate that process? How do we alert clinicians when their patient, you know, that they are seeing the next day may be eligible for a trial instead of expecting them to like memorize the trials that happen to be available and all these different, you know, complex criteria. How do we like put that right in front of them in an easy way? How do we then, you know, eliminate the duplicate data entry of, of, you know, all of all, 70% of the fields that we're trying to collect, I would, I would guess in most trials are actually already captured as part of the ED, uh, the EHR and part of the kind of clinical care. How do we just reuse that and automate that, that kind of data management flow so that we're not creating three X the work in order to, to make these trials happen. That's an amazing number. 70% is overlap and think about the money saved and and the hassle for a patient saved in having to to relive and rehash all that all that information experience. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow. Good. I was. I mean, just I think about times I've I've sat in clinic and shadowed these processes, and it is as far as we've come. It's really it's 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 just shocking how inefficient um, our systems still are. And that's on us because the technology hasn't, hasn't supported workflows that, that make sense for those trying to use it. But I watch people, you know, literally writing down written kind of case forms and then going from one system to the next and then retranscribing them and duplicating that entry. Uh, And, you know, that's, that's not only inefficient, but it's also error prone. And, you know, that the, we, we risk, um, kind of real errors through each step of the journey when we allow for that to continue to happen. You know, I want to pick up on what you said about making it easier and giving the tools to the physicians. Um, in our study, we were asking more about the data available through connected care, not only what's in the EHR and helping use that, or, you know, if there's real world data available more broadly, mm-hmm. um, but also even just remote patient monitoring data. Mm-hmm. You know, now there's more wearable data that can help us understand how patients doing at different points of time. And, you know, a lot more EMRs are allowing them to be uploaded. But when we talked to oncologists, almost 80% of them said, I just, I don't know quite what to do with it all yet. I don't know how to use it for a personalized care. And, you know, there's not standards yet to help me do that. Um, what do you, are, are we close to helping to solve that? Because the data is there yeah. to be used. Oh, I think it's, it's, 
It's a very real challenge. We we now have so many new streams of data that we have access to. We're getting closer and closer to being able to connect those systems in a meaningful way. Um, very excited to see the the new ONC interoperability rules uh, or, or APIs finally roll out, and I think those are going to unlock. Um, uh, at least a meaningful starting point for standards that enable type of uh, data interchange that is just, you know, so important. And, and it's a step one. It's not going to be the end all be all, but we'll continue to, to get smarter. I do think, you know, doctors are just like buried under the weight of all that we ask of them. You know, the, com- the complexity of the treatment considerations in cancer, all of these new sources of information and data that, that we might want to consider to truly personalize care, the payer requirements and all of the different mandates required to then, you know, ensure that the, the patient's kind of financial con- constraints are understood and that they ultimately get paid. Um, so it's just, it's a normally, an enormously complex landscape. And I think when you step back, the only way to deal with that is really smart technology that is integrated at kind of integrated into workflows in a way that serves the clinician, not quite honestly, the payer. And, and you know, we, we have an electronic health record that we develop at Flatiron. And the reality is those systems historically have been optimized for reimbursement, not for clinical treatment decision support. And, and I think that's that's an opportunity that, you know, is core to how we are thinking about the evolution of the system that we run. But I think we have to think about that holistically. How do we build technology that really supports decision making, not 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 just kind of the not just reimbursement? I completely agree. We've pivoted. Um, we have more available to make this the choices smarter. What you are seeing now is a lot of algorithms and clinical decision support being developed by pharma, by digitech companies. You know, there's there's a lot going on out there. But at CS, one of the things we believe is that in addition to the technology, this is only going to be solved through partnership because partnership leads to scale. And we don't want to further fragment with a lot of technology out there. So, you know, I You've had so many successful collaborations at Flatiron with a number of various partners across the ecosystem. I was curious if you have learnings or thoughts about how the biopharm industry or healthcare in general can do better um, to use data and collaborate with each other to advance some of these causes. Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, like this has been a really bright spot for me. I think we are, um, I see a real commitment across the ecosystem to connecting the work that we're all doing and coming together on some of these topics. I mean, you know, we were part of, of launching the Real World Evidence Alliance, which is a coming together of players a- across the field who are working to to build awareness and alignment around best practices and and policy advocacy and the, and the use of real world evidence. And that's you know, in some cases, like competitors in some ways coming together and working on on practical solutions that we hope will advance and kind of move move us forward together. I'm also really excited to see the momentum we've seen recently in, in public and private partnerships. So, you know, I think the increased engagement we're seeing from Biden's Cancer Moonshot initiative in the U.S. and, and the ways in which um, they've made a concerted choice to try to engage, you know, all all sides of of the ecosystem, the kind of private players, the health systems, the payers. Similarly, we've we've seen a lot of great collaboration with with NICE in the UK on the real world evidence framework they've they've kind of launched. And I think those public types of public private partnerships matter a lot. And then I think, you know, across both life sciences and kind of the the healthcare delivery ecosystem, 
standards-based approaches are what really, you know, where the, the, the real opportunity lies, which talked about kind of data interoperability and the ability to connect systems together. That's true in terms of care delivery and all of those kind of new data sources and elements that you talked about and how we make the most of them. It's deeply true in clinical trials as well. And when we think about, you know, the, the point in which life sciences touch patients and sites and research sites, that is going to be kind of an ongoing area of focus that I think um, we'll continue to look at. Absolutely. Those are amazing examples. They all come with some sort of a catalyst to a catalyst and, and, a, and a partner who's who's thinking about the next thing, whether it be a, mm -hmm. a public organization or or a, a collaborate like you've created, a, a collaboration like you've created. I do think as we think about clinical trials, we're going to have to figure out how do we band together? You know, how do we band together as an industry? Um, do we do we need a, ca a collaborator or someone to help us help us get there? But it does seem like we're getting to a point, especially in oncology with, you know, so many trials, yeah. so few patients to really participate that we have to figure something out. Yeah. Yeah. So Carolyn, uh, here's a question I like to ask all my guests. If you could change one thing about healthcare, what would it be? Oh, I love that one. Let's talk about the word healthcare. We spend so much time focused on the care part of that, the tests, the drugs, the labs, the procedures we all do. And I'm, I'm really optimistic about what the future holds there. All the things we just talked about, breaking down data silos, better evidence, faster, aligning incentives around outcomes. I think we also equally need to invest in the health part of it. Um, I think I, I get really passionate about improving health holistically before patients are sick. And that comes back to really addressing access and education on, you know, the, the full journey, mental health, nutrition, fitness, like how are we truly making our healthcare system work for patients? And that is something I think it's going to be really important to change. That's really insightful. And I couldn't agree more. So what's next? What's next for you? What's next for Flatiron? We have uh, an ambitious agenda for for the next decade, I think we just talked about so much possibility to, to reimagine the infrastructure of care, transform um, uh, how, how we research new medicines and how we, you know, optimize the, the care and treatment available for patients. And we're just really excited to be on that journey and see some of these possibilities we talked about truly come to fruition come to fruition for the patients and for the system. And it's a really wonderful ambition. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for all that you are doing at ZS to, to advance these goals. Thanks for listening to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. We invite you to subscribe and leave an iTunes review. To learn more about Connected Health and ZS's research, visit zs.com slash future of health. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.